Good morning, church family. Good to see all of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for making worship a priority this weekend. I hope you'll stay to the end. I want to also welcome everyone who's joining us online. It's always a great joy to greet you and to welcome you into our church service. If you got a Bible with you this morning, I want to hear your pages turning to the New Testament book of Romans and the 16th chapter. And while you're doing that, uh, let me just mention really briefly, uh, I know I, I said something about this last week, but I had a very limited amount of time uh, right before I interviewed Brother Ajay Law, but I want to just thank you again from my family for all of your prayers and thoughts and contacts and calls and cards and notes related to uh, my sister-in-law, Jolene, who passed away uh, after a 16-month battle with brain cancer. Uh, she died on September the 4th. Um, uh, Sandy and I were able to spend uh, some good time with my brother and Jolene and their family in the last few weeks of her life, and we had a wonderful, incredible celebration of life service for her on September the 9th. I was able to preach in that service. My brother shared a remarkable, remarkable message from his heart. All of his kids shared about their mom. It was very, very moving. So thank you so much. Please uh, keep them in your prayers. My brother, of course, Kenneth, you know, and he has three children, a daughter named Megan and two sons named Brandon and Travis. I know they would covet your prayers. This weekend, when we open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 16, we come to the end of this chapter-by-chapter journey through the book of Romans that we have called Unashamed. And it's an interesting chapter. About half of the chapter consists of some personal notes and greetings from Paul, which isn't a surprise because if you're familiar with his New Testament letters, you know that this is the way he concluded many of his letters. The difference when we get to the book of Romans is that the personal notes and the greetings are much longer than usual. In fact, as we begin Romans chapter 16, he asked the Roman Christians to greet 27 different individuals by name. He also identifies two different families and what I think are three different house churches in the first 16 verses. And the thing about Romans chapter 16 is you can come to this chapter after this incredible, incredible book and you can easily overlook this and just dismiss what Paul has written here as just some concluding comments that don't have much of an impact on our lives. But to do that would be a mistake because there is so much more than just concluding greetings and remarks in this last chapter. And so at the risk of being redundant, because I have said this two or three times before as we have gone through this chapter by chapter study of the book of Romans, I'm going to treat Romans chapter 16 just like it's a Bible study, like it's a big old Sunday morning Bible study, and we're going to cover the entire chapter. That might sound a little daunting, even maybe a little dull, but I promise you, if you stay with me to the end, I believe God will speak to your heart. And since we always make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service, if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're not going to read the entire chapter. <sighs> Sigh of relief just me. But we are going to read the last few verses. So if you want to follow along with me, and we'll have these on the screen, I'm going to read Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 25 to the very end, which is just three verses. Paul writes, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Say it with me. Amen. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask 
that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. We're gonna dive right into this. If we look at Romans chapter 16 from the perspective of a Bible study, there are three things that I've identified for us to talk about. If you'd like to take notes, here's the first thing. You can write it down somewhere. The first thing we see in Romans 16 is what we'll just call greetings. That's number one, greetings. And that's in verses one through 16. Now, I'm not gonna read those verses. I'm gonna talk to you about them, but I'm gonna really encourage you and hope that you will read them at some point today on your own. I can only imagine what you might be thinking. What in the world are we gonna see and learn from a whole bunch of names that we can hardly pronounce? Well, the answer to that question is a lot. In fact, I'm gonna do this as quickly as possible, but I'm gonna give you five observations that we can draw just from those first 16 verses under the heading of greetings. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to notice the names. And by notice the names, I want you to notice how specifically Paul names so many people. As I mentioned earlier, there are 27 specific people named in the closing verses of Romans 16. More than 27 are greeted, but 27 are named. And one of the things that we can learn from that just something very simple and very basic is that when it comes to church and relationships and connection and community, names matter. I've told you before you know my story, Mount Pleasant is the third church I've ever pastored. My first church was a church plant in 1982, started with 30 people and never grew to a church of larger than 250 people while I was there. And then I moved to another church that was a troubled church that had about 125 people. And I spent about 10 years there and they had a little over a thousand people there when I left. And I knew the names of everyone in both of those churches. I mean, how could I not? to start in one church with just 30 people and another church with just 125, right from the very beginning, I would know all those names. But because I was there and I was actively involved in ministering as the church grew, then I knew the names of everyone who came along. When I came to Mount Pleasant in the fall of 2001, there were already about 2,100 people every week who were gathering together to work for worship. And after my previous two churches, you can't imagine how difficult it was for me to not know everyone's name, how challenging it was for me to just see faces and have no idea who those people were. And even though I've been here for over 22 years, it's still a challenge because the church had about 2,100 people worshiping at that time. Pre-COVID, our number grew to around 5,000. Now that's people who are worshiping in this church three different times on the weekend, people worshiping in our impact center, people worshiping in our impact campuses in Indianapolis, and a whole host of people who were worshiping online. It was just impossible, realistically speaking, to know everyone's name. Even this morning in this service, I can look out at your faces and I can recognize so many of your faces, and I know so many of your names, but there are still so many of you whose name I don't know, but names matter because community matters and relationships matter. And one thing that should bless all of our souls and our hearts is that while we may be in a church where we don't know everyone's name, we always know we're a part of a church where Jesus, who is the head of the church, knows all of our names. I loved it when we were talking about 
the I am statements of Jesus earlier in this year, and we were in John chapter 10, where Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. And as he describes a good shepherd in John chapter 10 and verse 3, he writes these words, or speaks these words, rather. He says about the good shepherd, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And I want you to know, as a part of the greater church, as a part of the body of Christ, Jesus, he knows your name. When I pray, and I'm sure you would say the same thing, I talk to Jesus in a personal way because I know he knows me in a personal way. And so I think it's significant as we just begin looking at this last chapter in this powerful letter written by Paul, it's no accident in this letter that Paul is naming people by name because he knows the importance of relationships and connections and what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to be like Paul in that way. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice the different relationships and partnerships that Paul identifies as he addresses, addresses these people by name. When you read through Romans 16, verses 1 through 16, the words that Paul uses, the different words he uses to describe the people and their relationship to him are significant. I just made a list of them here in my notes. Here are the words, sister, fellow co-workers, my relatives in Christ before I was, whom I love in the Lord, fellow worker in Christ, dear friend, tested and approved in Christ, my relative, those who are in the Lord, women who work hard in the Lord, chosen in the Lord, what can we learn from that? Well, I think one simple point we can learn from that is the more you and I connect with people, let me say it like this, the more you and I connect with one another on a personal way, the greater blessing will come into our hearts because of how we're connected to each other's lives. That's one of the sometimes sad and difficult things about being a part of a large church family spread across multiple services on a weekend. But we should have this desire in our hearts whenever we are here in whatever setting, whether it's a worship setting or some other setting, whether it's in this building or some other place in this community, we connect to each other in a way that creates a bond in the relationship brothers and sisters in Christ, co-workers in Christ, and on and on and on. The third thing I notice here in the first 16 verses is how Christ-saturated these relationships are. In verse 2, as Paul identifies a woman in Rome, he says, receive her in the Lord. In verse 3, he talks about multiple people. says, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, he calls somebody the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. In verse 7, he talks about a group of people and says, they were in Christ before I was. In verse 8, he identifies someone as whom I love in the Lord. In verse 9, my fellow worker in Christ. In verse 10, he says, Apelles is tested and approved in Christ. In verse 11, he talks about a group of people. He says, greet those who are in the Lord. In verse 12, he talks about some women and he says, those women who work hard in the Lord. And then he says, greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. And then he identifies a man named Rufus and says, chosen in the Lord. That isn't just a simple list of greetings. This is the way a person who is saturated in Christ talks about his friends who are saturated in Christ. Paul can't go two or three words without mentioning Jesus, even in his introductory remarks to his closing remarks. 
and just reminds us that Christ needs to be in our speech when it comes to one another. Christ needs to be in our, our emails when it comes to one another, our telephone conversations and our texts and all the different communications we have. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as we have a community of faith, as we're a part of a community of faith together, this is the way we talk about one another. Relationships that are saturated in Christ. Number four, notice where the church in Rome is located. In verse five, Paul refers to a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. We read about them also in the book of Acts. He says, read also the church that meets in their house. And so there's a church or a community, a spiritual community in Rome that's a part of the church that he gives a generic greeting to through Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila, the way he frames it in Romans 16. Then there are other names. Verse 14, greet Asyncritus and Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Mermus, and the other brothers with them. And that, at least in my estimation, is a reference to another church that meets with those brothers. And then in verse 15, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Probably another house church. What did we learn from this? Well, we learned that the church in Rome was really a, a group of churches in Rome. Or in other words, that the city of Rome had diff, the presence of different bodies of faith, different spiritual communities that were all one church, but they met in different locations. And I think that's a beautiful picture of the kind of presence that the church needs to have in the world today. Because the church... Remember, isn't just a location or a geographic address. It's people, people meeting wherever they might be. I love it that we have our church here in Greenwood. I love it that we have different representations of our church here in Greenwood. We have what we do on the weekend here. We have what happens in the Impact Center every Thursday and every Saturday morning. We have our different campuses, Impact Old Southside and Impact Fairfax and Impact Bethany in the greater Indianapolis area and on and on and on. And I hope and pray that that continues to grow. I love it that we have these small groups that meet in homes in different neighborhoods. I love that just a couple of minutes away, I have a small group that meets every week in my home, in my neighborhood, and many of you can say the same thing. And then finally, I want you to notice with me the love that permeates this chapter, especially in the first 16 verses as Paul writes these greetings to these people in Rome. Because in the first 16 verses, what you would see if you looked at it deeply is four times Paul uses the words loved, or beloved in his greetings. Now, that doesn't translate in my New International Version Bible because of the way that the verses are rendered, but if you look at them in the original language, it is clear that Paul uses the words loved or beloved. For example, in my NIV Bible, verse five says, my dear friend Eponidas, but that would be my beloved friend, my beloved, my loved friend Eponidas. In verse eight, greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. In verse 9, greet my dear friend Stahis. And again, in the original language, it would be beloved or my loved friend. In verse 12, the latter part of the verse, greet my dear friend Persis. And again, 
loved or beloved. The thing all of those greetings have in common is they reflect a language of love. And that's the kind of relationships or those are the kind of relationships rather that should permeate every single church. That's the model, <clears throat> friends. That's the pattern of the New Testament church <clears throat> that I fear we have gotten away from in our modern American church Oftentimes where we just come and go. We come late, we leave early, we come when it's convenient. We worship in an impersonal way so much of the time. That is not the pattern of the New Testament church. The pattern of the New Testament church is deeper than that. It's more relational than that. Not long ago, a few weeks ago, Sandy and I got to spend some time with Bob and Judy Russell. I don't know if you recognize the name Bob Russell, but for many, many years, 40 years, for, uh, in fact, he was the pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. It's an incredible story. He went to that church when he was 22 years old. They had a worship attendance of 120 people. 40 years later when he left, they worshiped over 18,000 people every weekend. And Bob retired from, at a fairly young age, but has been very active in ministry since then. And I've been blessed to have a friendship with him for many, many years. And we were in Louisville, and we spent some time together. We were having lunch one day, and I told Bob about the very first time I ever met him. I said, Bob, you probably won't remember this. But many, many years ago, when I was just, uh, I was probably in my mid-20s, maybe 25 to 27, somewhere like that. And I had planted this little church in Sugarland, Texas with 30 people, and I did that when I was 23. Um, years ago, there were about 12 or 14 independent Christian churches across the greater Houston area. And once a month, we would have a minister's fellowship, a, a minister's luncheon. We would go to this restaurant. They had a private room and we would eat, uh, eat together and fellowship. And sometimes somebody would share something. And Bob Russell had a friend in uh, the north side of Houston, Spring, Texas, named Bill Gaslin. And Bill had invited him to come and preach a revival at his church, and it just so happened that Bob was there for that revival during a period of time when we were having one of those ministers' luncheons, and so he came. And we had lunch, and then he, he stood up and he shared with us for about 30 minutes, just some wonderful preacher talk, church growth talk, that kind of a thing. And I'll never forget, he said that, and Southeast Christian Church was always, already running several thousand people on the weekend by this time. But he said, I remember, I'll never forget, he said, my favorite time in ministry, remember he was there for 40 years. He said, my favorite time in ministry at the church was when the church was about seven or 800 people. That's what he said. And I'm sitting there and I, I remember looking next to my friend of mine. I said, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that just didn't sound right. You know, when you're just, you're just this struggling, struggling church to try to get 200 people in your service on the weekend. But I never forgot that. And so we were sitting at lunch and I said, Bob, Bob this is the first time I ever met you. And I told him that story. He looked at me, he said, I still say that today. He said, I've said that several times. Why do you think that was his favorite time of ministry? It's because he knew everyone. The church's relationships, it's community, it's connection. And you can read the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 16 and think, okay, that nice concluding remarks, let's get to the end. But remember, Paul writes those verses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is useful, is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy. And there's a lesson to be learned from those, especially, especially for us. 
in this modern American church pattern that we find ourselves in today. Here's the second thing that we see as we move through Romans chapter 16. The first one is found in the word, the, in the word greetings. The second thing is found in the word guidance. And I see that in verses 17 through 20. In fact, we will read those verses together. You follow along. Paul, after he finishes his greeting, says this beginning in verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving <clears throat> our Lord Christ, <clears throat> but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Did you sing that song back in the old day? And the God of peace peace will soon crush Satan. Remember that? And God will crush him underneath his feet. Whew. Remember that? <laughs> there were some other motions to it, but I'm going to exercise some self-restraint this morning <laughs> and not do that. So Paul moves from greetings to guidance. And when I say guidance, what he does is he takes the time in the concluding remarks of this letter to warn these Christians in Rome about false teachers and false teaching. And I got to tell you, I love that about Paul because, I mean, I think about what he's writing here in Romans. It's these great truths. The book of Romans could be called great truths about the gospel of grace. It's all about how salvation is a result of God's grace and it's received in our lives through faith. And so the book of Romans is primarily a book of doctrine, which means it's a book of instruction and teaching because that's the fundamental meaning of the word doctrine, teaching and instruction. And doctrine is critical because it teaches us about the nature of God and the character of God and the plan of salvation and the importance of a holy lifestyle. And it gives instructions to the church. And you can go on and on and on. Doctrine is absolutely critical to all of our lives of faith. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16 and says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, they will save both you and your hearers. Doctrine is critical. And so even though Paul has just written 15 chapters of doctrine, in his closing remarks, the Holy Spirit prompts him to add a very specific word about the importance of doctrinal integrity and the avoidance of false teachers. So let's just talk about it for a minute on just a practical level. A commitment to sound doctrine is crucial for all of us in our individual lives of faith and our collective lives of faith together as a church family, as a spiritual community. And so I'm gonna pause and I'm gonna use a very specific word to address you in the spirit of Paul and Romans 16. Beloved, we must remain deeply rooted in and committed to the truth of God's word. And that has to be a non-negotiable for all of us. And while this is too deep and complex a subject to cover in just one point of a message, let me just give you a couple of ways that doctrine, that good, sound doctrine is under attack in this modern American church that we are a part of today. The first way is through liberalism. At the core of liberalism is just simply this desire to try to make the word of God as attractive to as many people as possible. And so, 
What liberalism does in order to accomplish that is it will often strip away whatever we find in the Bible that is unpopular, that is difficult to hear, and difficult to accept. For example, if miracles are hard to believe, in fact, there's a, there's a prominent church in, um, well, I won't even say where it's located. There's a prominent church in our country today with a, with a pastor who's a prolific writer, and he has incredible influence over a number of younger pastors today who has taken the position of viewing miracles like this. If miracles are a problem for somebody that you're trying to share your faith with, then just don't worry about the miracles. Just focus on the one miracle, the resurrection, and who uh, let the others just fall to the side. It's not important that we, we believe or prove that all those miracles really happened. If marriage being an exclusive union between a man and a woman or gender identity based on biology or sexual intimacy being something that God created exclusively to be experienced between a husband and wife in the covenant of marriage is difficult to believe or hard to accept, whatever else and, and whatever else you might want to name to go along with that, the answer of liberalism is just to either set it aside or create new definitions or new rules or new interpretations or whatever it takes to make the Bible seem as acceptable as possible to as many people. And it happens all the time on some level. That's why we spent so much time earlier this year in a message series called Truth Over Trend so we can make sure that we had a biblical foundation for our beliefs on some specific cultural issues that are wreaking havoc and confusion on our culture today and on our young people today, our children. But liberalism isn't the only problem. Another way that sound doctrine is under attack today is through pragmatism. And pragmatism can be, if you're, in case you don't recognize the word, pragmatism is a word that can simply be defined by the phrase, whatever works, you know, whatever works, do whatever it takes, whatever works. And when pragmatism is applied to God's word or the gospel, what happens is we take the instructions of the Bible, let's say, for example, the Great Commission where Jesus tells us to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We take an instruction like the Great Commission and we look around and we see, well, what's working? What's working? And we, we, see, we find a, a church maybe where they're drawing a large crowd and we think, well, that's what they're, what they're doing works and so we'll do what they're doing. Now, I'll be the first to say that initially that sounds like it's a pretty good approach because why reinvent the wheel, right? If somebody has found the solution to the Great Commission and, and, and sharing the gospel and reaching people, then let's learn what we can from that. But the problem is, not always, but so much of the time, the Bible doesn't just give us instructions on what to do or what to accomplish. The Bible also gives us methods, instructions related to methods. And when we substitute human wisdom for biblical methods, which is what a lot of churches do, we make the same mistake as liberalism because we've sidestepped the Bible's teaching in favor of what we think will help us be most successful in drawing a large crowd or building a large church. But you can't ignore sound doctrine. I mean, these are some of the words Paul wrote in, we read them a moment ago in Romans chapter 16, verse 17. He says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. And then he says, keep away from them. This isn't a particularly contemporary illustration, but back in the 1990s, there was a prominent church that uh, was planted based on a whole new way of doing church. 
they designed everything in their services for non-Christians, people they were trying to reach, everything to make unbelievers and non-Christians feel as comfortable as possible. And as a result, they attracted thousands upon thousands of people and experienced exponential growth. They started offering leadership conferences and thousands of pastors and church leaders from all around the country came to learn a new way of doing church. That was in the 90s. In 2007, that same church, and I applaud them for this, released the results of an in-depth study to review the results of their new way of doing church. Because in their new way of doing church, the idea was if the crowd was large, then surely God was involved in blessing the ministry. But a multi-year study that they published in a book called Reveal, Where Are You?, co-authored by the executive pastor and the senior pastor of that church, shared that even though they had been successful for many, many years of drawing thousands upon thousands of people, they were not successful at producing genuine disciples. Genuine followers of Christ. Beloved, that's just one example. There are others. By the way, that same church is still a strong church today, and I'm thankful to God for that. And actually, I have a personal friend who's a pastor there, been there for the last two or three years, and I, he's a man of spiritual integrity, and I think the world of him. I'm going to say something at the risk of being misunderstood. The ultimate goal of the church is not to make unbelievers feel comfortable. The truth is it should be just the exact opposite. The goal, in a sense, would be to make an unbeliever feel uncomfortable in his or her sin because of the reality of God's judgment and the terror of spending eternity separate from him. I went to a pastor's conference a few years ago where we were all asked a series of questions. It was a conference designed for the pastors of large churches. We, were all, we all asked a series of questions. We didn't say them out loud. We wrote them down and then reviewed the results. One of the questions was, what book has made the greatest impact on your life as a pastor? You couldn't say the Bible. I don't say that in a bad way. You know, it was just like no Sunday school answer here, okay? What book has made the greatest impact on your life as a pastor? At the time, this was my answer. I don't know if you've ever read this book, but it was a book called The Body Being Light and Darkness written by a man named Charles Colson. I don't know. That's what I would have written at the time. I don't know if I would have written that today because it's been several years ago. But the vast majority of the answers were books like Good to Great by James Collins or The Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive by Patrick Lencioni and business books and management books like that. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that those aren't valuable books and that there aren't valuable things to be learned from those books when it comes to leadership and those kinds of things. But I go back to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, where he writes and says, for the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? And note the last thing he writes there. He writes, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I understand the context for those words, but I also see a spiritual principle 
related to the foolishness of depending on the wisdom of the world when it comes to spiritual things. And I'll be transparent for a moment, and I will tell you that it's difficult for pastors to not feel like they've failed at times in their calling when their church goes through a period where the number of people who attend or the number of baptisms or additions are down, something that every church experienced for a time post-COVID, something that our church has experienced for a time post-COVID. And it's hard not to wonder, what do I need to do and what's a different plan and to look for anything that might work. But there is never any valid substitute for the instruction of the word of God when it comes to our lives and when it comes to our lives together as the church. And so Paul says, hold on to sound doctrine and don't let false teachers in whatever form they might appear or their teaching might appear wreak havoc on your church. Let me give you one final word. Greetings, guidance, glory. You can write that down next to number three. I'm talking about the glory of God because Paul basically ends Romans 16 with what we might call a doxology. He's talked about the glory of God throughout the entire book of Romans. Even if he didn't use the words What he wrote was a focus on the glory of God. But remember what we read just a moment ago. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. Somebody say amen to that. In fact... Let's just sing this together. Praise God through whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Our lives should be lived focused on the glory of God. Our church should always be focused on the glory of God. But before I close, I just have a couple of minutes. Nope, I don't even have a minute. Can we go back to the relationship part of this chapter again? I've been a pastor for a long time. You heard that on the video, which, by the way, was so emotional for me last night. I am nine months and six days away. I'm not counting down the days. I just am a numbers guy. From not being a full-time pastor in a local church anymore, something I've done since May of 1980. And I know how important and valuable and necessary relationships are in the local church. I also know that it's never been easier to avoid church, skip church, bounce from church to church, or leave church 
altogether than it is right now today. And there may have been a time in my life when I had a legalistic view towards church attendance, but I don't believe that's the case today. But I will tell you this, church is not just another thing on a to-do list in anyone's life. It's so much more than that. The church in the New Testament shows us over and over again that it is so much more than that. And so I'm gonna ask you three questions as I close. The team can get ready to come. And I want you to answer these questions related on your, and this is for everyone who's joining us online as well. In fact, this may be even a little bit more important for those of you who are joining us online. If you're joining us online today because you are, are, are sick or shut in or you have a vulnerability, then I am so glad you're here. If you're joining us online today because you're checking us out before you ever come and visit, I am so glad we give you this portal into our church to see a little bit about what we're like before you come and visit, but I do want you to come and visit us in person. If you're joining us online today because it's just more convenient for you, because it somehow gives you the opportunity to fit church into your busy schedule, even if it's viewing church on demand because it's not just something you can see on Sunday morning, but you can see it all the time, I want you to consider these three questions as well. Whatever your approach is to your, your participation in church, the body, the community, here's the three questions. <clears throat> Are your current patterns of worship leading you to a greater commitment to Christ? Number two, are you involving yourself in serving, inviting, giving, and helping to make new disciples as a part of being a part of the body, the spiritual community that is Mount Pleasant Christian Church and all of our impact campuses? Number four, or three rather. Are you using your spiritual gifts, your talents, and your influence to build up the body of Christ? The church in the New Testament is so much more than what many of us experience and embrace in our lives today. And that's something that we need to hang on to.